Hey, it's Ed. I want to thank another Ed, Eddie Thomas, for supporting the podcast via Patreon. Eddie, I really appreciate it, and I appreciate all the support from everybody who's either signed up through Patreon or through PayPal, or even just sent me nice notes via email. It really all means a lot to me, and I greatly appreciate it. If you want to learn more about the options for supporting, go to mountainandpray.com slash support. Second thing, on Monday, December 16th, which is coming up quickly, I'm going to be down in Santa Fe, New Mexico with the great author and historian Hampton Sides, and we're going to be having a conversation on stage at the Southwest Seminars Lecture Series. We'll be talking about a lot of his work, about his process, the book Blood and Thunder, his newest book on Desperate Ground. He's been on the podcast twice, so I bet a lot of you have listened to that, but he's a he's a great guy, and he's hilarious, and he's super smart, so I think it'll be a fun conversation. You can go to southwestseminars.org to get all the information, but it's Monday evening, December 16th. Hope to see some of you there. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Mark Kenyon. Mark is a conservationist, outdoorsman, and author of the amazing new book, That Wild Country, an epic journey through the past, present, and future of America's public lands. For years, Mark has been well-known and respected in the hunting world, thanks in part to his website, blog, and podcast called Wired to Hunt, which focuses on the finer points of big game hunting. Mark and Wired to Hunt recently joined forces with Stephen Rennell as Meat Eater, which has helped to amplify Mark's impact on the worlds of hunting and conservation. That Wild Country is the culmination of many years of Mark's adventures, experiences, and writing, and I expect that Mountain and Prairie listeners will thoroughly enjoy it. From the outside looking in, it appears that Mark is cruising through life, living the dream. He hunts, writes, creates shows, and generally pursues his passions at full speed on a daily basis. But when you scratch just a little bit below the surface, you'll see that Mark's professional path has been, and still is, defined by extreme focus and hard work, as well as an insatiable curiosity for everything from white-tailed deer to U.S. history to the finer points of public land legislation. He walked away from an impressive and safe career at Google to merge his vocation and avocation, choosing to bet on himself rather than a career in corporate America. And his bet paid off. Between his podcast articles, essays, videos, and now book, Mark's body of work has educated and inspired countless people throughout the world. We started our conversation by discussing That Wild Country, which is one of the most engaging and user-friendly explanations I've read of the history of public lands, as well as the modern-day controversy surrounding public lands. We talk about the conservation legacy of Franklin D. Roosevelt, who I refer to as the other Roosevelt, and how his presidency revived our nation's commitment to public land stewardship. We dig into the details of the Pittman-Robertson Act, a historic piece of legislation that all of us who love the outdoors need to fully understand. We talk about the short and impactful life of Bob Marshall, the famed conservationist 
who's the namesake of Montana's legendary Bob Marshall Wilderness. We also talk a lot about Mark's personal backstory, his decision to leave Google for Wired to Hunt, his recent merger with Meat Eater, how having a son has changed his perspective, his daily routine for maximum productivity, and much more. And finally, we touch on why Michigan seems to produce so many committed conservationists and outdoor writers. I've admired Mark and his consistent, high-quality work for years, so it was a thrill to finally get to chat with him. I encourage you to check out That Wild Country and the Wired to Hunt podcast. But in the meantime, enjoy this fun and wide-ranging conversation with Mark Kenyon. I've got a million questions here that I've written out that I want to ask you about, but I think maybe the the best thing to do is just dig right into your book. Can you maybe just give an overview of the book and um, and and what it's about and how you came up with the idea? Because it's it's really an amazing piece of work. Yeah, well, thank you, Ed. It's, it means a lot given all the all the books I know that you read and the people you chat with. Um, so I'm thrilled to hear that you enjoyed it. We were chatting just a second ago about. Uh, before we recorded, just about the whole process of of writing something like this and how it's easy to worry that um, how could this hang with so many other great books out there and so many other great writers. So it's it's nice to have it out in the world now and people are enjoying it and that's kind of the thrill of my life. So yeah, the book's called That Wild Country, An Epic Journey Through the Past, Present, and Future of America's Public Lands. In, In a nutshell, the book is about you know, how we came to have 640-some million acres of public land here in America, um, the people that were instrumental in that happening, the controversies surrounding them, and what the trajectory of our public land system has been all the way from the 1800s right up till now, and then what's happening right now today that could influence the future. That is what originally inspired me to dive into this book. Um, I don't live out west surrounded by millions of acres of public land. I live in the Midwest, Mm -hmm. but I grew up in a family um, where the outdoors meant a lot to us. We we hunted and fished and camped and hiked and spent a lot of time outside. So I I grew up with a love for these places, but it wasn't until um, I kind of went off on my own that I started branching out and heading west and heading north to different places with these bigger, wilder landscapes. And I fell head over heels in love um, with that with the wide open, with, you know, the Tetons and with Montana and with Utah and all these different areas I was getting to explore finally. And eventually got to the point where I was able to have a job that allowed me to spend months at a time living out in these places. So really lucky to get to spend a lot of time, um, in our public lands compared to some people, especially around me where I live in Michigan. Mm -hmm. So I had this love for these landscapes, and in 2015, 16, as, as you're aware, there was a lot of controversy around these places and this idea of the land transfer movement. And as I was trying to wrap my head around that current controversy, that's when I realized, wow, I, I don't know how we got to this point. And if I don't know how we got to this point, being someone who kind of worked within the outdoor media space, what about all of the rest of the folks out there, people that lived around me, people that um, just your average man or woman on the street, what do they know about our public lands? And turns out, as I started asking around and chatting with friends and family and other people, a, a tremendous percentage of the American citizenship has no idea what kind of public land heritage we have, let alone the history of them, let alone the current um, the current news cycle around them. Mm-hmm. So I decided maybe I need to learn about that myself and share it from the perspective of, 
my perspective, which is just an average guy who loves these places, who wants to understand what's going on and how to make sure we keep them around. Um, that was the impetus for the book. And so this the book, I mean, I just, as I was telling you, I love it. And it, it kind of hits on everything I'm interested in. And it's, I love the structure of it. It's, you know, part history and then part your personal journey and your personal adventures in the West. And I think you and I are a lot alike in that I, you know, I'm not from here and I fell in love with it. And a lot of my, you know, my career and my hobbies and everything are now devoted to the West and and particularly public lands. Um, And so when you started these trips, you know, like, for example, in Yellowstone, at the beginning of the book, did you have this idea in mind, like, all right, I want to write a book about this? Or did, did you start doing these trips? And then you look back and you're like, Oh, that would be a good book. I mean, how, how did that, how did that, the, the kind of the thought process play out? So the, most of the trips included in the book happened after I already knew I was going to write the book. Okay. Cool. Um, the only one that happened prior to the book actually being a thought in my mind was the very first, that introductory chapter. Um, when I am in Utah, mm-hmm. right around the same time that the, Bundy occupation of the male hero national wildlife refuge was going on. So my wife and I were out in Utah at that same time that everything was going on in Oregon. And so my whole experience there in Utah was colored by this, by this event hundreds of miles away that could possibly impact the future of the places in some degree, to some degree that I was exploring right then and there. So we had that trip and I was thinking about all these things. It was right around that same time that I was realizing this, this, this is the book that I want to write. Um, after that, you know, I'm lucky to, as I mentioned earlier, get to spend a lot of time on public land, exploring a lot of places. So did a lot of different things. We usually spend two, three months a year living out there. My wife and I, um, most recently in a renovated camper for months at a time. And so there's a whole bunch of different options I could have went with for inclusion in the book. So I just started taking notes and journaling everything I did for the next couple of years, um, thinking that some of this might make it into the book. And then other times I specifically chose like, okay, and we're going to go and do this, you know, or spend a week here mm-hmm. because that so naturally ties into something I know that we, we need to cover in that book. Well, you keep saying you're lucky and I'll just interject and say, you've made your luck and you've busted your ass to make this lifestyle that you have. <laughs> It didn't, Thank it you. didn't just Thank happen. I mean, I, I, I've admired it from afar, from a long way. And we'll talk more about your career because it's, I mean, going from, from working at Google to, to creating this, you know, business and, and lifestyle brand around you and your expertise and your love of conservation. It's, it's pretty amazing. I want to talk about that, but back to the book, um, I'm just gonna kind of jump around of things that stuck out. One of the things yeah. that I'm obviously obsessed with Theodore Roosevelt and I get such tunnel vision on him that I I don't think I really pay attention to things outside of his time period. And right. I loved learning about the other Roosevelt, FDR, and mm. all of the conservation um, progress that was made during his administration. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've watched the whole Ken Burns 14 hours and, you know, I admire Franklin, but I just – I didn't really ever put it together. And that that was a real eye-opening for me. Could you just kind of talk a little bit about that, about – you know, obviously TR started it. Then there maybe was a little a little wane in in the conservation movement, and then FDR. Can you talk about his that time period and everything that happened? What began around this time period that Theodore Roosevelt um, left office, 
is this swinging of the public lands pendulum that seems to continue every few decades over the course of history. So you had this great sweeping set of changes there when when TR was in the arena, as you might say. And then when he left the stage and the 20s came roaring through and World War One before that and the Great Depression, a number of things happened that took the nation's attention away from conservation and public lands and things start swinging the other direction. So when FDR came on the scene, he came from a similar background as TR with, with a certain degree of exposure to the outdoors and, and a respect for it at least. And he now had the ultimate authority like TR had to start influencing some change. But what he did that I thought was pretty cool is he sought out experts in the field to help direct his administration and his plans. He didn't just direct from a top, you know, the mountain and say, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. He sought out those people that spent the most time out there on the land or that actually helped set up the public land system as it was. So he reached out to Gifford Pinchot back from TR's period. He reached out and brought Bob Bob Marshall into the fold to help him figure out what to do about the national forest system and the ideas around wilderness. Same thing with Aldo Leopold, these formational characters in the history of uh, our public lands, FDR found, you know, sought them out, pulled them in and said, hey, help me with what our national high-level plan will be. And those guys helped him then determine, you know, these huge impactful things like the conservation or civilian conservation corps, the CCC, Mm -hmm. um, the ways he tried to develop new plans and new ideas to help recover wildlife. A lot of that was driven by Leopold and this commission he, he set up with, with Leopold, a part of that and Ding Darling. So, he he had a very much how would I describe it? a coalition focused approach to public lands, which led to a whole lot of national forests and national parks and wilderness areas being created during his period. That that kind of set us up to where we are today. I mean, the, the CCC. If you go to any any national forest or national park. Um, you're going to see the fingerprints of that era still there, whether it be in the design of the cabins or the the rest stops or the signage throughout our parks and forests, in many cases, to the trails and roads or fire towers. So many of those were put up during the 30s and 40s. Um, it, it was an interesting time because it was transformational in that you had this public land system coming of age of sorts. We had national forests now. We had national parks now. Um, And the question was, what do we do with them now? We we, we have a choice. There's a little bit of a fork in the road. There were some folks within FDR's coalition, like Bob Marshall and Leopold, who said, we need to be really careful about how we develop and use these lands. We do need to, yes, we need to use them. Yes, we need people to enjoy them. But we also need to protect some. We need to keep some untrammeled. So you had this wilderness idea just starting to percolate at that point. On the other hand, you had folks, including FDR, um, who also believed we need to make them accessible. So we should build new roads. We should be, build new visitor centers. We should build lodges and chalets and Glacier National Park because we want American people to come out and experience these places. And it was one of the... it's. It was an early example of something that we still deal with today, which is the inherent 
dichotomy of our public lands, which makes them so great but so challenging. Mm-hmm. They're they're owned by all of us. They are multiple use in almost all cases. So you have so many stakeholders that all have different ideas of how to use or manage these places, and we have to find a way to balance that. That's that's a challenge, but it's also what makes them so special. Definitely, that was a, a great summary of that. Um, one of the things that I think my listeners in particular would be interested in that they may not know all that much about is the Pittman-Robertson Act. Um, you know, I personally, I, I like to hunt, particularly bird hunting, duck hunting, but I'm not at all. I mean, if you're a college professor of duck hunting, I'm in preschool or of hunting in general, I'm in preschool, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I, I'd say I'm more in the outdoor recreation world, but I've got kind of uh, one foot in each in, in a way, but the Pittman-Robertson Act is something that, I just wasn't all that familiar with um, for the longest time, and it's been the last few years that I've come to understand just how impactful that has been and the role that hunters have play have played and play in a big way in conservation. Could you just give an overview of that? And for people who are listening, like I don't want to hear about legislation; that's boring. This is very, very important. So, and it's it's been very important for me to learn more about. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, and I'll try to keep it really high level here, mm-hmm. but during that period of, of FDR's administration, the Pittman-Robertson Act was passed, which essentially created a system for placing taxes on hunting and shooting-related equipment that would then create a fund which could help pay for wildlife restoration and uh land acquisition and different things related to managing wildlife and and wild lands across the country. So that is still in place today when you purchase a a gun or a bow and arrow or certain other types of hunting equipment, an excise tax, you pay an excise tax on that purchase, which then goes to help fund our state wildlife agencies and so much of the conservation work still done today. A A tremendous amount of the work being done is paid for with those funds. Um, I can't remember the dollar amount off the top of my head, but it's it's hundreds of millions, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars now um, that have been raised for conservation uh, across the country because of that. There's also something similar that's placed on fishing-related purchases. Uh, so this is one of those foundational laws that gave us the the funding to protect these places and animals, similar to how the Land and Water Conservation Fund was one of those formational things that provided us funding to acquire public land or manage public land. There's a lot of there's a lot of people that have great ideas or great intentions for protecting animals or wild places, but the tough thing usually is getting the money to do mm-hmm. it. Um, even within the federal government, that's a serious challenge. So by putting this self-taxation in place for the hunting and fishing community, to, to help give back to a resource that we do take from, um, I think was a really, really important step to take back then. And it's something that I do know that a lot of hunters and anglers still today are very proud of, um, that we, we, are, we are more than happy to pay for this resource that we love and care for so much more. Yeah, I mean, and, and the interesting thing, and you know, not to, to start pointing fingers, but you know, when you buy a backpack or you buy a $400 Gore-Tex coat or any of the other gear you need to go out and recreate, whether that's running, backpacking, hiking, you know, none of that money goes into this fund or goes directly towards conservation. It goes to the company 
that you're, you know, that you're buying the stuff from. I mean, some of them like Patagonia, for example, will give money away, but that I think it's important for people to realize just that hunters and anglers are literally putting their money where their mouth is and they're, they're funding this. And I work in conservation 50 hours a week and it is all about the money. I mean, that's probably 75% of what I do is raising money to make these deals happen. And so I've had conversations with people in Washington, D.C., senators, um, aides on natural resources about, you know, when are you, when are you going to start making the outdoor industry, uh, you know, the, the recreational side of things pay their fair share? And they say there's a lot of pushback, which is interesting. Um, yeah. I don't know yeah. what the answer is. I'm not trying to start trouble, but, but I, you know, when you see everything that hunters and anglers have done, it's a great example of how things could be done. And I'd pay more for a coat if I knew the oh, money yeah. was going that way. Absolutely. I've, I've always thought the same thing too. And I, and I understand and I've, I've heard some of the, the arguments and, and I, I know there's some pushback around the idea of what, what people call the backpack tax, which is essentially be a similar excise tax as what we have on hunting and fishing equipment. But, but man, yeah, as, as someone who, who backpacks and camps and, and hikes and kayaks and all that kind of stuff, I'd be more than happy to pay a little extra on those purchases too, to go back and, and help fund conservation and protect these places because whew, there's just nothing more important, at least in my life, than keeping those those great gifts that we have here in America for my son and for, for all of our kids. And I don't know, that'd be the best money I'd ever spend. Yeah, I agree. Um, you mentioned Bob Marshall a few times, and that was another great thing I learned from your book. Because on this podcast, you know, when I ask people where their favorite place is in the West, a huge percentage says the Bob Marshall Wilderness. They just, and I've actually never been there. Um, and but I never fully knew who Bob Marshall was until I read your book. And I think people who listen to this podcast a lot and may not be familiar with it know the name. But could you just give a quick? sketch of who bob marshall was because he he accomplished a hell of a lot pretty quick yeah in a very short time period which which is which is a tragedy um because he he passed away i think it something like 38 years old yeah 38 is what he said yeah it's crazy yeah so he was a young man uh from uh the east coast originally who fell in love with the mountains actually did a lot of exploring in the Adirondacks, which is an area that I got to spend a lot of time in as a child too, which is interesting. Um, but long story short, he ended up in the forest service working out West in Montana and Idaho and in that Northwest part of the country, fell in love with it, realized that we have such an incredible thing there, but we need to protect it in a different way. This goes back to that wilderness, um, push and pull that we talked about a little mm -hmm. bit ago. He was one of those earliest advocates for providing special protection to some places, keeping roads out of some places, keeping development out of some places. So he worked for the Forest Service in a variety of roles, um, eventually started writing for a number of professional journals within the forestry industry. And then later, with a wider and wider scale, he started really eloquently and powerfully um, advocating this wilderness idea in a way that connected with people and actually started opening people's eyes to it a little bit and got the Forest Service itself to start inventorying what roadless areas they had left and developing different programs that would put more permanent protections on parts of the Forest Service, uh, of the National Forest System, excuse me. And eventually he got to the point where um, people with very real influence started reaching out to him 
for help. So Gifford Pinchot reached out to Bob Marshall to help formulate a public land and national forest plan for the coming decades. And then eventually President Roosevelt reached out to him to help develop those plans. So he had an outsized impact for how young he was between his writing, between the relationships he built with people and the government in high places. And, and then he went on and did some incredible exploring up in Alaska too, mm-hmm. writing about that in a, in a book that's, um, that a lot of people enjoy now and, and, and point to as another one of those seminal wilderness works. And, and he, he just had this way about him. People always wrote about, he would, he would hike 20, 30 miles a day, just hike and hike and hike and hike and hike, just could go and go and go. And that seemed to be not just how he lived his life, uh, when it came to boots on the ground, but it seems like he did that just with how he chased the things he cared about and stood up for them. And because of that, even though he passed away at 38, um, he's looked back at now as one of the most influential people in our public land system because of the fact he helped get these wilderness concepts turned into some form of actual real protection with the national forest system. And he helped really get this wilderness idea out there, which then, you know, over the next couple decades, slowly built into what became the Wilderness Act that made that permanent. So just thinking about your your process of writing this book, I mean, before you started this, were you are you interested in government? Are you were, were you interested in in politics? I mean, because you obviously have such a hold on it. Um, was that an interest of yours before or over the course of writing this book? You kind of came to love it and became an expert in it because it's amazing to me how you're able to communicate these things that are complicated and a lot of times very boring in a interesting way. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was my goal with this book was to take a topic which exists in the in the world today in thick textbooks mm-hmm. and really hard to dive into biographies for the average person. Uh, not many people are going to go and, and and dive into the dark, scary basements of public land history. There's just – it's hard to digest. So I want to try to somehow get this stuff across in an engaging, accessible way that the average person could read and enjoy uh, but learn something from. And so I don't think I necessarily had a predisposition to politics um, necessary, uh, necessarily. I've always loved history. I'm fascinated with history. So I've read a lot of things and in particular the history of the West and the history of our wild places. Um that's the through line that mm-hmm. goes through my life is a love for wild animals and wild places. So I'm, I'm constantly reading books about the natural history of animals or certain places. Um, so I just wanted to take that love I had and find a way to uh, – someone once told me that if you want someone to eat their vegetables, you have to give them a lot of candy along the way. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, so I tried to find a way to, to, to share the vegetables of the history here with a lot of candy along the way and, and hopefully I achieved that. Yeah, well, you did in my eyes, and they, you know, I think being an outsider from that world is probably a huge benefit because, like, when you look at the the bibliography, the selected bibliography, it's just this amazing list of of great books, but but super dense books that are written by sometimes academic types, and you, yeah. you know, that was kind of some of the basis for for what you wrote, but you're able to kind of pick out the parts that are interesting and and useful and put them together in a way that makes sense. I mean, I'm. Like I keep saying, I'm very jealous that you did this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyone can do it. I mean, it's it's uh, I'm I'm sometimes still 
taken aback that I did it too. It's 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 the I've been really blessed to have been able to do a lot of cool things, uh, but this book is the product of so much love and sweat and time. It's the thing I'm the very most proud of that I've that I've ever done. So it's cool to have a physical representation of effort mm-hmm. and a time period of your life. I've never had a physical thing that I can pick up and say this represents a tremendous amount of of like my soul or my time, so many late nights and early mornings and and wonder and worry and actual physical experience in these places. It's all distilled down into a, a eight inch by five inch rectangle now that I'm holding in my hand. And that is, that's pretty cool. It's definitely cool. Um, maybe just, I'd like to hear a little bit about your process of writing it. Um, and, and we don't have to go into all the details. I, I, I really um, made Mark's ears bleed before we started talking, asking him a bunch of questions about agents and proposals. But, but I mean, how long did it take you? Not, I'm not talking about the the trips and the the the, the taking notes. But once you decide, got the word that all right, there is a book here. I need to write a book. I've got a deal. How long? How long did it take? It was about a year mm-hmm. of the of just the writing after the book deal, but, uh, but much longer prior to that of writing notes and journaling and traveling, all those things you alluded to the trips. Um, but of actually sitting down and and doing the serious banging my head against a wall, trying to write a book that was about a year, um, which coincided with the first year of my son's life too. (laughs) That's what I was going to ask. Which made for an interesting uh, time period. Did that, when I had my first kid, it was obviously overwhelming in a lot of ways, but it also forced me to tighten up my schedule and any slack in the system was taken out. And I feel like during that first maybe year and a half, I got so much more efficient with, with my time. And I, 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 that's actually when I started my, my podcast was just maybe six months after my daughter was born. And I just – I got a lot more um, focused. Did you find that? Because you've got – I mean, you've got so much going on. This this book is just one of many, many things, and then you throw in a kid. How how did that affect your your ability to to juggle all these balls you got going on? Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely a challenge, and it did force me to become more efficient. Um, I have always been the type that wants to have a really great routine, and uh, you know, I, I love following folks like Tim Ferriss and. Yeah find these different ways to you know, be a high achiever, hack things, whatever it might be. I've always been drawn to like, how do you, how do you polish the stone further and further and further? But I'm also incredibly human and fall back into bad habits a lot. So I don't, I never do. What's wrong with you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what was cool, what was both stressful and interesting about trying to write this book during my son's first year was that it did force me to to take those ideas much more seriously because I had this this anvil over my head <laughs> saying you have to finish this book on time, <laughs> otherwise you're in trouble. <laughs> and so, so yeah, I had to really take my morning routine seriously, and I became a lot more efficient because of it. I had to learn how to, you know, structure my day in a different kind of way to be able to still get writing in while also doing my day job. Um, cause basically I was writing this book on the edges of my day job, which is running a podcast and, and writing 
more hunting related things and doing a whole whole lot within the hunting and fishing space. Um, so I had to get up a lot earlier and figure out a way to be effective early in the morning and then still effective late at night and still be a dad. Um, so it was trying, but at the same time, it, it was a period of my life where I was doing some of my probably my very best work and it's helped me now i'm to a degree still carrying on some of those habits today um which is helping with future projects but but yeah it wasn't i can't say i figured it out perfectly along the way i just you just do the best you can and take you eat the whale one bite at a time well once you figure it out that can be your second book you just write that out and, and t- <laughs> tell everybody the secret but so wait what is your what is your routine i mean you don't have to go into every single thing but but what have you found works for for getting your day off to a good start and i'm asking this very selfishly yeah so i, I wish i i had the superstar morning routine um i want so badly to be an early riser same i but my body doesn't want to be so it's this constant battle between my mind and body um but i've, I've gotten better I, I i found that my natural wake time is somewhere around seven mm-hmm. and so that used to be i would just wake up at seven and start the day kind of slowly um but i wanted to be able to get up and going sooner so i started just trying to shift it little bit by little bit so i started saying okay i'm going to start waking up at 6 45 and i did that for a while and then i was and I was like, yeah, i'll do 6 30 so i did that little incremental trick and i've gotten it down to i, I wake up at six now and I go for a run and then I come in and try to get showered without waking up my son. Mm-hmm. And then by the time that's done, I've at least gotten the day up and running. And then when my son usually gets up around seven, I can help get his day started and then start to work soon after that. Um, but back when I was writing the book, I had to crank that up even further because I needed to get some serious work done before mm-hmm. he woke up in the morning because uh, that was some of my best quiet time to write. And for me, when it comes to, to writing, especially something like, like this, like the book, uh, it takes what uh, a guy named Cal Newport calls is, is deep work. Oh, it, I love it that. Takes, yeah. So I really need a lot of space and time and quiet to really get into any kind of flow of sorts. And if, it, if I get an interruption, then I'm out of it. And it takes a long time to get back into it. It's really hard to kind of um, synthesize ideas into language that that's that makes sense for me at least so i needed a lot of space and time to do it so i started waking up at four every morning oh wow so i get up at four and then i would do that whole get a workout in shower and start working um like that and then i would work then after we put my son down to bed at night and um and that that typical those three things are what helped me the most. And I'm not saying I get it right every single day. Still, I still have days, especially during um, the fall. I get really busy with travel for um, hunting related trips and things like that for my day job that that knocks me out of my routine this time of year. Um, but if I can get the somewhat early wake up, if I can get a workout in, if I can get a shower and a coffee, then I feel like the day has started off in a productive fashion and it kind of gives me momentum for the rest of the day. That's what I was talking about when you kept saying you're lucky. That that is uh, maybe you are lucky, but you have set the table to have good luck by by being willing to work that hard. Um, and so you, it's in, your, your background is really interesting to me. You're just in general because you you've got your foot in so many different worlds. You know, you, you were in the tech world before you you started your own business. Um, you know, you're you're in the literary world now, which requires so much deep work, deep focus. And and then you're in the, the outdoor hunting world, you know, which is a, a very physical, um, you know, movement, um, uh, you know, 
hardcore type type uh, activity. And so can you talk a little bit about your early career? I mean, you, you grew up there in Michigan, I, I, I believe, and went to school there. And, and how did your career progress to get you to where you are right now? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned earlier, grew up just absolutely in love with the outdoors. Everything I did was in some way revolved around that. Um, but I got kind of sidetracked in college um, with the allure of business and mm-hmm. the big city. And so I, I went and had an internship between my junior and senior year of college out in New York City. Worked for a big advertising agency out there. And while I was there, I began to feel this immense sense of claustrophobia Mm -hmm. and not being able to get outside into the wild places. I couldn't get out and hunt or camp or hike or whatever it was as easily as I could do back home. And it was killing me. So I I was working at the time with bloggers. My job was to reach out to bloggers and try to get them to write about our clients' products. This brought to my attention the fact that there are these things called blogs and that people were writing about whatever they loved online and making a living doing it. And I thought, wow, maybe I could start writing about something I love and that'd be a way to scratch that itch for me while I'm out here in New York. So I did that. I started a website. It was about hunting. Um, and that was kind of a fun way for me just to engage with the act- this activity I love so much, but do it from afar while in the middle of the concrete jungle. Yep. Uh, fast forward a year, and I had taken a full-time position with Google coming out of college. And I started working at their headquarters out there in Mountain View, California, which is just outside of San Francisco. Um, so I found myself in a similar situation where I was in the middle of the city. I was overwhelmed with work there trying to figure out how to have a big boy job, yep. uh, but at the same time, not able to get outside, do the things I loved. So once again, I went back to my website and started digging into that again. And I kind of, I had an epiphany moment, actually. I think you, I think you follow him as well. I was in Barnes Noble. It was September, or October of 2009. And there was a book on the end stand called Crush It. Oh yeah, by uh, Vaynerchuk, by Gary Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh huh. And I read that book, and I closed that book on the last page and said, "That's what I'm doing with my life." Really? I'm going to yeah. I mean, that day I closed it, said, "All right, I'm going to make a living from my passion. I'm going to turn my website, which is called Wired to Hunt, I'm going to turn that into something where I can share my love and my passion, and also do that as a career." And from that point on, I worked every single day trying to build that into something that could someday support me um, and led me to, in 2013, being able to quit from Google and, and go full time with my own business. So did that for a number of years, running uh, what was a, a website and a podcast about uh, the outdoors and hunting. And then eventually in 2000, oh boy, I think it was early 2018. I merged Wired to Hunt with a company called Meat Eater, which was founded by Steve Ranella, um, which is a whole long conversation in itself probably, but uh, as, as a means to uh, start achieving my next set of career goals. And and tell me if I'm getting too long-winded here, Ed, sorry. No, no, I love it. Uh-huh. I love all of it. I'm just trying not but, to go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so when I, when I started Wired to Hunt, it was just, can I make something that someone cares about, that someone would want to read? And then eventually people wanted to read it. And it was, okay, could I someday make a little bit of money from this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I was able to do that. And then it was, okay, could I someday you know, be able to write for magazines? And I could do that. And then it was, could I actually do this full time? And then I did that. 
And then at some point, several years into working within the outdoor media space full time, I started having this shift in my own head. You know, every year I try to sit down and write goals for that year and then goals for five years from now. Yep. And I found that my what was starting to matter most to me, or at least where I wanted to be heading, I was going more from self-centered achievement. Mm-hmm. So at one point it was, I want to have the biggest podcast in the hunting space or whatever. I started thinking that I want to more so try to make an impact. Mm-hmm. I want to somehow five years from now be able to look back and say that i made a difference. I changed something. I created some kind of positive change in the world. And that was right around the same time when I decided I was going to write this book. So one of the decisions I made to try to start working towards this idea of making a difference was taking on this book project. And the second thing came about when Steve Rinella approached me about what he was doing with Meat Eater and a mission-focused company that could could take this community of hunters and anglers and conservationists and uh, and try to shine a really positive light on what people within that world are doing and inspire people to continue to try to hunt and fish and be great stewards of the land and um, our wild animals. And the platform that we could have if we combined what we'd both created along with a number of other people and their brands and their ideas and try to take a a whole lot more energy and resources and people to create a really positive shining example of what the hunting and fishing community could be. I saw that as, as, a, as a great opportunity to do something on a new scale that could make a, could have a long lasting impact. So decided to do that. And for the last almost two years now, that's what we've been trying to do. So that's, that's, I guess, the longer version of my career story maybe than you wanted. No, that's, I, I could keep asking you questions about that. And so, you know, one question I have is you and I were connected, you know, social media. I was, you know, really admiring what you were doing from before, even before you, you teamed up with Meat Eater. And that's an obvious match there. But, you know, there, there are tons of hunting podcasts. I mean, it's almost ridiculous how many there are. And so what do you, you're so modest, you probably won't, won't be able to answer this, but, but <laughs> what, I mean, what is it about yours that makes it so popular? I mean, what, like if you had to break it down from, you're, you're obviously analytical and you, you're goal oriented and you, you figure this stuff. I mean, what is it about your podcast and Wired to Hunt, the, the blog that, that makes it stand out from the rest? I mean, I, I my first thought is just, genuine enthusiasm and passion, but a lot of people have that. So what else, what's the secret sauce? Uh, I don't know if there's a secret sauce, but waking up at four in the morning. I think, I think, yes. I mean, there was a lot of work. A lot of people approach their podcast as a, as a fun little hobby. Mm -hmm. Um, I always approached it as my calling and something that I had to put everything into. So I worked tremendously hard to to do that. I also got a little bit lucky in that I jumped on the podcast bandwagon pretty early and really was able to create one of the first really serious hunting podcasts before there was thousands of them. So I had a little bit of that early movers advantage. Um, but then to your point, uh, I think that I think that I – I don't do many things well, but a few things I probably do well are one, like you said, I'm very analytical and curious. I'm insatiably curious. I just want to learn. So I try to, with my podcast, satisfy my own curiosities and share that with the rest of the world. 
by reaching out to and speaking to the most experienced, knowledgeable people within a given field. For me, that's the hunting field. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think doing that in a very consistent, high-quality fashion, I've tried to fine-tune my interviewing skills and my storytelling skills. I've tried to actually look at that as a as a tool, not just a a thing that I do, but as something that can be sharpened and improved. So I'm constantly reading about how other people interview folks, or I read many books about storytelling, writing, asking questions. Um, I'm always studying those things. I don't look at it as just a, just, just a thing you do. I looked at it as a thing you could, you could improve upon and grow within. So that has probably served me well. And then finally, I um, have always looked at my role within the outdoor space not as a singular figure of expertise. I've never tried to position myself as the all-knowing person of hunting. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to look at Mark Kenyon and say, that's the guy that's going to tell me how to do everything. Um, I have always tried to position myself as, and, and the reason why I position myself as this it's simply because it's who I am. Uh, I'm the person who loves the outdoors so much and I'm trying to figure it out and I'm willing to share everything that happens, the ups and the downs along the way. And I, I put it all out there so people could follow along with not only my interviews with these different people, but also my own personal story as I try to guinea pig all the new ideas I learned along the way. And my audience has gotten to follow that journey and, and hear all the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, every silly mistake I've made, every challenge I've had balancing my passions with my family, every um, mistake I've made or success along the way. Um, I have – someone once told me that uh, – this is a few years ago. I hope I've <laughs> – it's it's both uh, complimentary and slightly backhanded. But <laughs> he, he said, uh, Mark, you've, you've cornered the market on failure. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, you know what? I guess you're right. But I guess it's worked out okay. So I, I think that maybe some combination of those factors has helped me had had some success. Um, I've, I'm grateful it's worked out. Do you read Seth Godin? Do you pay much attention to him? Yes, definitely follow Seth. Yeah, he his his blog post yesterday. I mean, I just everything I do in kind of the creative world um, is. I'm just doing what Seth says to do. And but yesterday his blog post was something about losing being a, a graceful loser and being graceful at failing because he said if you're doing anything worth a damn you're going to fail a lot more than you're su- going to succeed so you better get used to it. And I think anybody who's doing anything worth a damn is failing. I think what you've got the confidence to do is you show that to people and you show the real the real story and I think it's most people don't have the, and it is a confidence thing. Most people don't have the confidence to, to show that. Oh, I'm not, I'm not the best, especially in this social media world. So I think that, that is something that's resonated. And you know, I, I love all your, you know, you got the podcast and, and the writing, but then there's this whole video component, and you share these stories from hunting, and um, the the newest one, I guess, that I'd love to hear. You could just give a, a synopsis of because I think people would enjoy it. Is the Back Forty project that you've been working on with Mediator? Talk about that because that's one of the that's one of the coolest ideas. Because you know I'm I used to be in the real estate business and then I, you know I enjoy hunting and I enjoy the outdoors and it's like it combines all that. So how does it um, how did that come about? Yeah, well, you know I had just written this book all about 
public land and the importance of public land and conservation on public land and all the different things we can do out there and, and what we need to do to keep these places viable and healthy and public. Uh, but at the same time, there is so much going on with private land that is equally as important, but oftentimes overshadowed, um, at least within the outdoor recreation community sometimes, both hunting and fishing or, or otherwise. And we started looking at how do we tell that story? How could we um, approach this topic, excuse me, specifically within the hunting world in our case? How can we tell a hunting story that also speaks to conservation on private land and, and, and inspire and inform people through that story? So what we decided to do was purchase a small piece of land um, just outside of a town in Michigan that – it was kind of just a raw piece of farm ground. It had been farmed for decades, kind of farmed to the ground over and over and over again. Uh, relatively barren, open fields, a swamp in the middle. And our goal was to try to use this 64 acres as a canvas to tell that story I alluded to earlier. Could we transform this property in a way to make it a biodiverse wildlife paradise where we prioritize not just huntable species – as sometimes is the case for you know folks in the hunting world, and I certainly have been guilty of that in the past too. Um, but how could we approach this property not just as a recreational property, not just as a place we can hunt, but as a place where we can learn about private land conservation, learn about things like regenerative agriculture, learn about the watersheds, learn about pollinators and um, songbirds, native plant life, learn about all these things, manage to improve and help all these things, and yes, still have a great place where you can hunt or forage for mushrooms or chase turkeys or whatever it is that you love to do. Could you, can you, is it possible to balance all those things? Mm -hmm. That is the question we wanted to answer and document it as we go about trying. And that is what the Back 40 series is. It's essentially a TV show, but it's on YouTube. Uh, it's on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Um, and we are, we're five episodes in the sixth episode comes out in just a few days and it's been, it's been fun. It's a challenge, but it's, but it's been a lot of fun along the way. I'll put links to that. I'll embed the first episode on, on the webpage for this podcast so people can easily access it because it's, it's really good. What is the deal with Michigan and creating all these hardcore outdoorsmen? Cause it, <laughs> there, there's this like you, Ranella, and then I've gotten to know Chris Dombrowski, who I believe you yeah. know, and he's from yeah. Michigan. And there's just this endless supply of some of the most committed hunters slash conservationists, people that really just seem to get it on the on this big level, and then they become leaders. What what is it about Michigan? I don't. I mean, it just continues to come up, and it's it's pretty consistent and amazing. What was it like growing up there? Yeah, you know, it's a funny. I've asked that. I've asked that myself because not only those guys you mentioned, but what about Tom McGuane, oh, Jim yeah. Harrison? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are, there are some serious shoes to fill coming out of Michigan. So it is very interesting. And interestingly, a lot of those people, they all start in Michigan but end up in Montana. <laughs> is, are you, so, uh, is that forecasting something for you? And that might be forecasting something <laughs> for me too. <laughs> We've been looking for, for a spot for a while now. Um, I I am not sure why that's the case, except for the fact that Michigan is blessed with tremendous um, wildlife and, and, and outdoor resources. We've got the Great Lakes, which are just hard to explain to anybody who hasn't spent time around them. Basically, these inland oceans mm -hmm. that um, impact 
everything about the culture here. It's a very much a water focused culture for a lot of the state. At least I grew up on the West side, very close to Lake Michigan. Um, much of my childhood was spent fishing on the rivers and lakes that are surrounding, uh, along the Eastern coast of Lake Michigan. There's a pretty darn good amount of public land in the Northern half of the state. Um, so whether or not you live up there, it's always part of the culture, at least not I wouldn't say for everyone, but for many people in Michigan, you have a tradition of going up north to partake and be a part of those places. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and pretty great, diverse hunting and fishing, hiking, kayaking opportunities. There's there's places to go and do these things. I don't know how we manage to get people that are pretty decent at talking about them or writing about them <laughs> or standing up for them. That I can't quite explain. Um, but I do understand why we breed people that love those things at least. Um, back to the book real quick. Um, I, I've got so many notes here about your book. And I mean, again, we, we, maybe we could just do like a 10-hour podcast. Just joking. <laughs> um, but so obviously both you and I love TR and it's – it's kind of a problem for me, actually. But but um, when when you were writing this book and learning all the things about T.R., I mean, obviously he was going to play a role in the book. But was there – did you learn anything new about him? Was there anything surprising about either his personality or his legacy or the actual the, the, the legislation he pushed through? I mean, was there anything you walked away from after writing this and you're like, ah, oh, that was – that's a, a new thing that I didn't know about him? Yeah, a lot actually because – to be honest, prior to diving into this project, I had always understood and known about Theodore Roosevelt at just a very surface level. Yeah, um, I knew that he was tremendously impactful for our public lands and conservation. So I knew he was this foundational figure. I knew he did a lot of great things. I knew that one of the things I liked about him a lot was that he was not just a conservationist or environmentalist, but also a hunter. Mm -hmm. And he showed that those two things can be and and oftentimes are one and the same, which I loved about him. I thought that was a tremendous example he set for us today. Um, I knew those things. Um, I knew that as president, he had done so much to actually protect many of these places, but I never knew the nitty gritty details of how it all happened or how it began, Um, especially the impact he had prior to becoming president. That was all new to me when I started really diving in and really reading all the books about him and studying the different sources out there, going and, and seeing the places he spent time. That was really, really special for me, um, getting to go and spend time in Western North Dakota where you know today we call it the conservation or sorry the cradle of conservation because that landscape really inspired and and spawned what Theodore Roosevelt became which was this great figure for wild places and wild animals he he traveled out there in his 20s as you as you know I know this is <laughs> this is not anything new to you but uh he traveled out there to to the badlands of North Dakota to go for a, on a buffalo hunt in his 20s thinking he's going to go out there and have this great western hunting experience that he read about and he arrived and and his whole world kind of blew up when he realized this was so much bigger than what he ever imagined and he just had to be a part of it so right then and there he he laid down the money to buy a ranch and he started spending a significant amount of time out there for for the years after that hunting and ranching and exploring um, and writing a little bit And so getting to go and see his ranch house, getting to walk along the river, walk underneath the same cottonwood trees that he did, uh, just being able to have some way to physically connect with this person that 
represents so much of 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 what we can aspire to be like that was really formational uh, but i never knew for example like that he did so much impactful work with the Boone and Crockett Club, like how influential mm-hmm. the Boone and Crockett Club was that he founded, co-founded, um, and how they really helped, you know, really make the national forest system happen. You know, their their uh, advocacy and testimonies and the the pressure that folks within that organization, like George Bird Grinnell and Theodore Roosevelt, because of their stature within within circles of power, they were able to really influence these things getting started early on. The protection of Yellowstone National Park in many ways from poachers, from a railroad being put right through the park. The Boone and Crockett Club and TR and George Bird Grinnell, um, they were influencing those things way back in the late 1880s, 1800s, prior to him ever holding any kind of significant office. Before he was governor of New York, before Mm -hmm. he was the president – he was probably even before he ever had those offices, he was already one of the most impactful advocates for public lands and wild animals. Um, so that was just a little bit shocking to me. He had his fingers on this whole world for decades and decades. Um, it's it's obvious to some people now, but we would not live in the America we live in today if it wasn't for him. Yeah, definitely not. Um, so no one – you know, all that you know now, I mean, you've, you've dug into these, the individuals that played such a role, you've dug into each significant time period, you've put boots on the ground in all these special places. And yet there are, you know, you think about TR's day and the robber barons were doing their best to take every tree in the national forest and he fought them. And now, you know, over a hundred years later, here we are, and they're still a threat. And so does that, do you feel optimistic? Does it make you feel better knowing the history and knowing that this is kind of how it goes and there's always going to be a fight and we can't let our guard down? Or is it how, – how do you how do you feel looking forward to the future um, with, given that the threats seem to never go away? It's, it's interesting. I was just actually thinking about this last night. Um, part of me – part of – Part of me is hopeful mm-hmm. because you see that this has been going on for a long time and people have always stood up and people have always fought and and we've had many wins along the way. Just having preserved the landscapes that we have today is amazing. It is a blessing. It is a miracle that we have hundreds of millions of acres of public land, of, of wilderness areas. Um, that we still have that is amazing and it gives me hope that people back then were doing it and they could make a change individual people could make an could make a difference grassroots movements could make change happen Um, so seeing examples to pull inspiration from is helpful to me and gives me optimism that we can still do it today Um, at the same time Aldo Leopold I'm going to get the quote wrong you've probably heard this one Um, but Aldo Leopold wrote something along the lines of the the curse of an ecological education is that you live in a world of wounds. Once you start opening your eyes to what's happening with public lands or the natural world, um, you see that there are constant attacks. You see that all of these special places, many of our wildlife species, um, many key indicators for the health of our natural world are still uh, in dire in dire need of help. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things going on 
um, that are concerning, that are worrisome, that could give you cause for pessimism or depression. Um, so I'm constantly battling that too, where you just see, oh my gosh, there's this is going on with the Tongass National Forest, and this is going on with the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and this is going on with the Boundary Waters, and this is what's happening in the Everglades, and this national monument just got slashed. And the you look at example after example after example, and you become almost it would become easy to almost throw your hands up in the air and say, what could we possibly do? Um, big, you know, there, there are always going to be so many different forces uh, out there, whether it's just simply the, the reality of the market and the reality of growing populations and business that there will always be these pressures on wild places and animals and the environment that is just inherent in the way of the world. Um, so that could be depressing, and at times I find myself like, "Geez, yeah, what are we gonna do?" But I, I fall back on um, somebody like Tr, who always spoke out the importance of action, and the only way to, and, and this is something Ivan Chouinard has said often, which I've always appreciated, which is that the only way to fight depression or worry is through action. I love that. Yeah. So, so I find my inspiration and my mission moving forward in not dwelling on the damage, not dwelling on the worry, but dwelling on how do I do something about it? How can I do something positive? Because people have proven that putting your foot down, drawing a line in the sand and standing for something can change the world. And um, that gives me hope. There was a quote in your book that I'd never seen before that I wrote down, and it said, TR liked, and I think the quote was, people who take the next step, not those who theorize about the 200th step. <laughs> Isn't that a great one? I, I loved it. I'd never seen that. And I um, I mean, that's that was very impactful to me. Um, and one more kind of wrap-up question about this is I know that you lend your name and your talents to a lot of different organizations that, that are doing important work um, to – to uh, you know, stand up for these public lands. Are there any uh, nonprofits? It was just Giving Tuesday, and so I was thinking about this. Any particular nonprofits that you have admired or that you support that you think people should look at when it comes to these issues? There, there are a lot of great organizations out there working towards these causes, um, but probably two in particular that I uh, that resonate with me the most, uh, simply because of the fact that I do a lot within the hunting and fishing world, would be backcountry hunters and anglers, mm -hmm. and the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Um, both of these organizations are really focused on habitat and the environment and public lands. Um, so really working on, for the ground, for access, for the health of these wild places and wild animals. Uh, but they do so through the lens of the hunting and fishing community, um, building grassroots support within that community to to, to, to remind us all of, of the heritage and legacy that we have from hunter conservationists like Theodore Roosevelt, who said that if you're going to take from the land, if you're going to, if you're going to harvest a deer or catch a fish and fry it up for your family, you better damn well give back to, and those organizations are doing a really good job of, of building and, 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 uh, organizing energy and people to fight for these places in a way that's that's really making a big difference right now. Um, you know, TRCP works much more in um, at a high level, bringing different. Well, they do a lot of education work, but then also work at a high level, bringing different 
organizations together to lobby or to make um, to put pressure where needed to fight towards various environmental or public lands related issues. BHA, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, is much more a membership focused organization where they are developing chapters of people on the ground all throughout the country now who can do local work to improve our public lands, to improve access to, um, you know, when needed, call or write letters or show up at a at a capital and mm-hmm. take a stand for these places. And they're really, they're the fastest growing conservation group in the country right now, um, really growing by leaps and bounds, a lot of energy within this community of people who um, really, really love our natural world in America and across North America and are, and are doing something about it. There's this really unfortunate um, perception sometimes within our country about hunters and anglers. This idea that the hunting and fishing community is a bunch of roughnecks who just want to shoot out of a bloodlust and are disrespectful and antagonistic towards animals or the environment. Um, and unfortunately, there's there's always a couple bad apples out there who get shown on the news and who paint this community in that way. Um, but that is not representative of the larger population of of hunters and fishermen and women out there. Um, as you know, having experience within those worlds and being one yourself, um, when you hunt or fish, when you engage with the natural world in that kind of way where you, you're not just an observer – you're not just walking through a landscape. You are actually becoming a part of it. You, you become a cog in that wheel. You're just as much a part of it as the wolf walking across the mountain. And that changes, that colors everything differently. Every sound, every, every flash of color, every step you take is 2,000% different than it would be if you were paddling through or walking through. Not saying those types of experiences aren't great too. They are. I love them. But – being a hunter or angler gives you a new way to engage with this incredible country we have that makes for some of the most passionate conservationists uh, that you could possibly find. And uh, I'm proud to, proud to be uh, associated with a lot of folks like that. I say Mark Kenyon for, for governor of Colorado. Hey, I like that idea. <laughs> I love Colorado. Um, now that was very, very, very well said. And, um, we're, we're already at just over an hour. So I got a few quick questions I want to ask you, and then I'll let you get back to your full schedule. Um, that was, that was really great. And, and back to the backcountry hunters and anglers and the Theodore Roosevelt conservation partnership, I'll put links to that. And I, I second everything Mark said about those organizations. They're doing great. You know, my daily work is private land conservation, but there's nobody better in the business than them. And they're, they're doing it the right way. So um, I encourage people to, if you got a few extra bucks, throw it that way. Um, few, few really quick questions. The the bibliography on your book is amazing, um, and so it may just be pulling from this. But are there any books that come to mind that are your all time favorite about the West? Doesn't necessarily have to be about about public lands, but just books that have impacted your career and your thinking. Oh gosh, I should have been prepared for this because I've, I've listened to I've listened to a lot of your episodes in the past, Ed. And so I know this is a question you ask, and I'm looking at my bookshelf, and there's so many to pull from. I'm jealous um, of your bookshelf, by the way. I, I gotta believe you've got a good one too. Um, but but a few that probably stand out to me um, would be a little bit more experiential, I guess. The the 
books by Rick Bass. I love Rick Bass and his books about the Yak Valley, um, about why uh, there's one he, he titled Why I Went West, I believe. Yeah, that's I come up before and I have not read it. I need to. Love his perspective um, on on being a being a transplant to the West and engaging with it and why it's so special to him. Um, those are great. I love uh, my buddy Steve Rinello's books are some of my very favorites. Um, in particular, uh, The Scavenger's Guide to Hawk Cuisine mm-hmm. was the first book that inspired me to try elk hunting. Oh, really? Um, I'd always said I wanted to try it. I wanted to head out west and do that, have that kind of big wild experience and and get to know those animals in a better way. And, and, and sitting one day in my house in Michigan, reading the chapter of his book where he was, he was out there doing that in Montana, I, I just sat the book down on my lap and said, dang it, I just, just have to do it. I have to get out there. And so I think if you read a book like that or Meat Eater of his, his book Meat Eater, That's which um, is a tremendous book that isn't just about the West, but definitely speaks to experiences in the West um, through the lens of somebody who does uh, hunt or fish is another good one. Um, oh my goodness, Ed, I'm, I'm failing miserably. No, you're not. So many, there's so many others out there that could probably better synthesize my love for the Western United States, but no, those, uh, are, those, those are all those great. Are a lot of good ones. And your, your bibliography again, I mean, it's, I've probably read like two thirds of them and the other, the other ones, I don't know if I can get through them. So I appreciate you synthesizing some of that for me. <laughs> You know another one I love? What? Another one that I love uh, is the American Serengeti. You've oh, read that, right? Oh, yeah. And so, so great. And Dan Flores is one of the coolest dudes around. Yeah. Yeah. Just fascinating to explore the history of of the Great Plains and the megafauna there, um, both thousands of years ago and then more recently, the last hundred years. Um, just love that. Any any book that transports me back in time across the American West just immediately captivates me. Um, I as soon as you cross through the ag lands of the Midwest, and as soon as I start seeing some prairie, just this, I don't know. I feel like a weight's lifted off my shoulders and just transported back in time. I guess I'm a little bit of a romantic, as many people are, about mm-hmm. the American West. Um, and it's, it's, it never, not once have I traveled West on I-80 or 90 or 94 and not felt this physical, visceral sense of childlike excitement again. As soon as I start hitting the Great Plains, uh, you just can't, you can't beat it. Well, man, thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time. And especially when we had the, some scheduling hiccups doing, getting this done, but I, I know you've got so much going on, but again, Congrats on the book. Thank you for everything you're doing to getting these important messages out to, to such a wide audience. I, I really, I mean, I've admired your work for, for a very, very long time. And, um, and now I'm extremely jealous of you and in your publishing career, <laughs> but I, um, I, again, I, I just really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun and I hope we can hang out in person one of these days. Thank you, Ed. I really appreciate it. And I would love to do that. I've, I think you're doing great work too. I've enjoyed the podcast and uh, following what you're doing too. And it's fun. It's, it's great to see these um, types of conversations finding a home. It's important. It's important stuff. So thank you for that. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or 
go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.